0: you. Uh, thanks Keish, Keishla for uh, sharing uh, your heart and your journey, your life with us. Praise God uh, for the work that he's doing uh, through uh, through Keishla. This uh, this week I heard a, a little kind of a, a story I guess. It's a story about this little boy who was on his way to church and uh, this is kind of uh, happened some time ago, uh, many, many years ago. This boy was going to church and his parents, as he was walking to church, they gave him two quarters, gave him two quarters so as he was going to church. Um, he was going, holding these two quarters. Mom and dad said, "A hey, one quarter is for you to give to God in the offering plate, and the other quarter is for you to go buy ice cream after church is done. And so he's walking to the church, and he's messing around, and he trips, and he falls, and he drops his quarters on the ground. One of them rolls down the sewer, never to be found again. The other one rolls a little bit away. He picks it up and he says, oh, and he's sad. And he puts it in his pocket and he goes to church. And as he's recalling the story to his parents, they said, how was your day? And you know, how is everything at church? And he said, well, I fell and uh, the quarter fell down the, the, the sewer and I couldn't get it back. And so mom and dad said, OK, so did you give the other one uh, to uh, church in the offering plate? And he said, no, mom, don't you know that the quarter that went down the sewer was the one that I was supposed to give to God? kind of a silly story, but I wonder what we would have done had we been in the same situation. I was talking with our, texting with our youth pastor Daniel, and you know, I think I'm a pretty nice guy, but sometimes I can be mean, but um, pastor Daniel is nice always. He's a very nice guy, and so, so he, he said something to me that was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit taken aback by, because it was not the nicest thing, but, and so I asked permission, can I share this? He, we were just talking about money, talking about retreats, talking about uh, stuff that's going on this summer and, and, and how um, we you know, we'd like to give scholarships to people who are in financial need, and we don't ever want to let uh, material uh, uh, resources keep people from experiencing the blessings of God. And so he said, you know, it's interesting to me, and he said, why is it that some people will ask for scholarships financially for retreats, but then I see them eating out at fancy restaurants and buying really nice gifts for their friends? I just wonder why that is. I wonder why that is. Isn't it interesting how money has a way of exposing our hearts? Whether it be a little boy who loses a quarter, or it be a grown-up person who says, I have money for certain things, but not for certain other things. As we look at the teachings of Jesus, he knows how important money is as a mirror for our hearts to expose what really lies beneath the surface, to go beyond the songs that we sing, to go beyond the confessions of faith, to really look at what we believe based on right, Based on how we spend our money. We looked at last week, Jesus said, hey, this is this is one of the true tests. Where are you storing up your treasure? Are you storing up your treasure in heaven by investing your material treasures into things that are eternal, or are you storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy? Jesus continues to pick up this theme. In fact, Jesus talks about money more than he talks about heaven and hell combined, more than he talks even about sex and love because he knows how important money is as an exposer of our hearts, but also as something that can easily divide our hearts when it comes to our devotion to the Lord God. Let's look at Matthew 6. We're going to read a handful of verses here, uh, verses 22 through 24, just three verses, and we're going to see what Jesus says as he continues to press upon our hearts this idea of being singularly devoted to him even when the competing idol is money. Uh, Matthew 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount, verses 19, I'm sorry, verses 22 uh, through uh, 24. This is God's word. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word. In the passage we look at today, the passage we look at last week, in this short section, about six verses, Jesus points out three pairs where he's calling us to choose. Last week, it was about two treasures. Today, it's about two eyes And about two masters. And he's saying, which will you choose? Two thoughts that I want to bring out today from uh, the verses, the passage that we just read. The first thing is keep a singular focus on what really matters. Keep a singular focus on what really matters. Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. He's saying basically... As your eyes go, so will your life go. Right? That's basically what he's saying. Good eyes, good life. But what does it mean when he says your eyes have to be good? In Jewish literature, when they talked about having good eyes, it means two things. Healthy eyes means two things. The first thing that it means is that you're able to see that which is good and important. Okay? So if you can see what's good, what's important, then the Bible would say you have good eyes. What does that mean? We, we kind of have a Jewish understanding when it comes to eyesight. When uh, we talk about uh, some of the cultural idioms of our day, uh, we say things like, "Oh my, Randy Jackson on American Idol, that guy, he's got an, he's got an eye for talent. So he's able to see that which is important, that which is good. He's got a good eye." For talent. Baseball season just started. Baseball is my first love. And so when you watch baseball games, you ever go to a baseball game, you've got a batter, the pitch comes, he doesn't swing, the umpire says, it's a ball. What do you say to him? You say, good eye, good eye, good eye. Why? Because he's able to recognize that which is good and recognize that which is not good. He's able to choose that which is better. One other illustration to help us understand what Jesus is saying when he talks about eyes. Uh, last week, my, it was, uh, my, my in-laws were in town for a couple months, and, and Monday, we decided to go to the Orlando Eye because they were leaving. They left on, uh, I think, Tuesday or, or Wednesday. Went to the Orlando Eye, and it was, I, I think it's 400 feet up in the air, and on a clear day, okay, on a clear day, you can see all the way out to Cape Canaveral on the East Coast, we could see all of the lakes and all of the, you know, the downtown area, Disney World, Universal. We could see all of those things from 400 feet up in the air. On a bad day, when the day is cloudy, you can't see anything. And so thankfully, by the grace of God, the day we went, there was not a cloud in the sky. It was beautiful. We could see as far to the east and west and north and south as you could possibly imagine to see. When the eye is good, uh, you can see all that is good and important. When the eye is bad, uh, you can't see that which is good and that which is important. How are your eyes today? Do you see what's good? Because as your eyes go, so will your life go. You, I mean, those of you who have perfect vision, don't have contacts, don't have glasses, have no idea what it's like to have bad eyes. Man, you are, you are a blessed child of God if you have perfect vision. There are things that you can't do if you don't have good eyes. There's certain, you can't fly planes. You can't be a pilot. Did you know that? You can't like join certain parts of the military. When you have bad eyes, your parents make you eat carrots because they tell you this lie that your eyes will become good if you eat carrots. You ever woke up in the middle of the night with bad eyes and you don't know what time it is and you're trying to figure out, you look at the clock and all you see is a big blur? That's what happens. It's terrible. Having healthy eyes makes all the difference in the world. And he's saying, when you have good eyes, you see that which is good and that which is important. But the Jewish understanding of having good and healthy eyes is not limited to simply being able to see what is good and important. The second part of having good eyes, healthy eyes, is not only do you see what's good and important, but you are singularly devoted to that which is good and right and pure and true. What does that mean? In other words, if you have good eyes, you don't have double vision. Your eyes are not focused on two different things. You have a single-minded focus and a commitment on one thing and one thing only, and that's the thing that really matters in life. How are your eyes this morning? Where is your focus do you have blurry vision? Are you looking at several different things as you pursue them? Or do you have, as Jesus says, good eyes that are able to see that which is true and right and noble and pure and to follow that with a full hearted devotion? I remember a few months ago, <clears throat> I was taking a walk with uh, Manny and Elijah and we were walking on a bike path in, uh, in, in our neighborhood And I was pretending to chase Manny and Elijah, and they were running and running and running away from me. And Manny is obviously saying, come on, Elijah, we got to run for the monster. We got to run. And so she's running and Elijah's running. But Elijah doesn't know a lot about thermodynamics and stuff. And so as he's running, he's looking back to see how close daddy is, monster is, to catching him. And every time he looks back, he's looking forward, he's looking back. What is he doing? Instead of running on the straight and narrow, every time he looks back, he's veering closer and closer and closer to the grass because he has double vision, because he's not focused on where he's supposed to be focused. And a lot of us, Jesus says, are living that way. You ought to be singularly devoted to me, to my cause, to my purpose. If you have a single-minded commitment to me, then you will be storing up treasures in heaven. Then your eyes will be good. You won't be wandering in two different directions. How is your eyes? How are your eyes this morning? What are you looking at? What are you focused on? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. What are we looking at? And where is our focus? This understanding has kind of come into uh, again, cultural uh, understanding through <laughs> back in the '80s. So you, you guys may have heard our brother Eugene talk about the movie Rocky. Right? There was actually a franchise of movies called Rocky about this kind of the the truest underdog, Rocky Balboa, a kid from the Philadelphia, the Mean Streets. Not a natural boxer, but he's got heart. And so in Rocky one, he makes this improbable rise from being this nobody. To fighting against the champion of the world, Apollo Creed, whose son is the, the movie Creed, is, is about this dude. But Rocky's fighting Apollo Creed and he ends up losing. But the theme throughout the movies is that Rocky has his eye set on the prize. And the way that you know that Rocky is pursuing that is a song comes on, especially during training. It says he's got the eye. Of the tiger. If you Google "eye of the tiger," what does "eye of the tiger" mean? Nobody really knows what it means, but I'll let me let me conjecture based on what I think Jesus is saying. It means that your eyes are focused on that which is important. When Rocky has the eye of the tiger, he's undistracted. Nothing can keep him from training and being the best that he can be. But once he becomes a champion of the world, the song says, "You trade your passion." for glory instead of being passionately committed to that, which is important and right and good. He trades that passion for glory, for praise, for popularity and the applause of people. He no longer has the eye of the tiger. His eyes are divided and all of Rocky two and three are spent trying to recapture that focus, that eye of the tiger you want to come into at least our millennia in the 21st century, you remember what Coach Taylor says in Friday Night Lights, that great movie, uh, that great TV show? Before he sends his team out, he says, clear eyes, full hearts, and they respond, can't lose. Again, I Googled, what does that mean? Just to be sure if your eyes are clear, you're focused on that which you need to be focused on, then your hearts will be full of passion, of devotion. And no matter how you play, no matter what the scoreboard says, if you've got clear eyes, you're focused on the prize, you're going to do this together, your heart is filled, then you can't lose, no matter what the scoreboard says. Because they are singularly devoted to the one thing that matters in life. For them, it was winning the championship. For us, it's Jesus and his commission for us. Are your eyes set on things above? Or are your eyes set on things of earth? I appreciate um, the testimony that Keishla shared. Uh, she came to us in, in 20, so about five years ago, she came to us non-believer. 2012, she gave her life to the Lord. And I know Keshla's journey, I know all of the ins and outs of it, the intricacies of it, the addictions that have been broken, the healing that God has done in her life through a house church through the work of God. And now she's on a course where she said, I don't care what anybody else says of me. My eyes are clear. They're set on the goal. My heart is filled. And no matter what people say about me, I can't lose if I follow the call of God in my life. And this is what we're about. Taking people from wherever they are, equipping them as Christ-centered leaders, and go forth and go change the world for the glory of His name. Her eyes are set on that which is right and important and true. I was talking with an, another single lady recently. We're sitting at Panera, and uh, her heart is two things she wants in life. She said, I want to follow God with all of my life, I'm ready to lay down my life for the kingdom's cause. And her heart, her desire is to be a missionary. The second thing that she desires with all of her life is she wants to be married. I want to follow a man into the mission field. I want to go. I want to get out there. I want to live for the Lord God, but I don't want to be dragging some dude. I want him to be walking that path so I can follow him and say, yeah, wherever you go, I'm going to help you to build the kingdom. This person, by the way, is not Keshla, but as we sat talking in that Panera, she just started crying. He said, where are the God-fearing, godly, forsake it all? I have decided to follow Jesus, men of God, in this world. You know that two-thirds of the mission's force right now in the world are married. And out of the other third, 80% of them are single women. Only 20% of the single people in the mission field are single men. Why? Men of God, what is going on? With us Why? Where are the godly, God-fearing forsake it all? I've decided to follow Jesus, men of God, this is what this sister said, that they're in front of the TV playing video games. And I know that there might have been a hint of bitterness and anger and spoken somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I can't completely disagree. We need people who cannot be bought. By the things of this world. Men and women of God who are singularly devoted to the call of God. Who say, my eyes are on Christ. My vision is clear. My heart is full. My treasures are above. My walk is set. My companions may be few, but my guide is reliable. And I won't give up. I won't give up. As I follow Jesus, this is what we need. And this is what Jesus calls us to. A singular commitment and focus to the things in life that really matter. It's the first thought that Jesus shows us here. The second thing that we see here, second thing that we see here is make God your master and make money your servant. Verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I know it's easy for us to say, well, that's, of course, make God our master and make uh, money our servant. But how do we do that? Biblically speaking, okay, biblically speaking, what it means to have somebody or something be your master means three things. It means that you love it. It means that you obey it. And it means that you trust it. And this is gold. I'm I'm, I'm impressed that some of you are writing this down. I hope you guys remember this this is spiritual gold here. What do you love? What are you obeying? What are you trusting? There you will find your master. And Jesus says, if God is not going to be your master, then the default of many a human heart is that we will find it in money or its cousin possessions. What do you love? What are you obeying? What are you trusting? Jesus doesn't say, hey, you shouldn't serve both God and money. He doesn't say, hey, uh, don't try to serve both God and money. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. He's saying, it is an impossibility. You cannot serve the two. He says, it's like being, you can't have two masters in the same way that you can't have two spouses, I know there are movies and there are people who have multiple spouses, but you can't really be committed to both. Having a master, being a servant, a slave to a master is a 24-7 job. He says, if you're fully committed to one, then you can't be fully committed to the other one. He says, you'll love the one and hate the other. He's not talking about emotions. He's talking about devotion. If you love money, he's not saying you're going to have this, oh, I hate God, I want to beat him up. No, he's saying you won't be devoted to God if money is your master. In other words, a divided heart can never, ever, ever be a devoted heart. You cannot serve both God and money. He's saying you can't, it's impossible. Try as you might, you can't. So what do you love? What do you love? A lot of people, a lot of people love money. And the love of money, Paul writes to his disciple Timothy, is the root of all kinds of evil. If you love money, you'll sacrifice eternal things for the sake of money. If you love money, here's a good test. Are you sacrificing your family, which is eternal, for the sake of making more money? The love of money is a root of all. What would you do for a million dollars? What would you do for a million dollars? Would you leave your family for a million dollars? Do you know, at 25 years ago, James Patterson and Peter Kim wrote a book called The Day America Told the Truth. They said that 25, this is 25 years ago, 25% of Americans said they would leave their family for a million dollars. said that they would leave their spouse. Give me a million dollars. I'll leave my spouse. 7% of Americans said that they would kill somebody that they don't know for a million dollars. And 3% said that they would put their kids up for adoption. Give me a million dollars. You see the insidious nature of the love of money. People take out these massive insurance premiums on their family members and then they go and they kill them to get this insurance money. It's crazy. It's twisted. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What do you love? Do you love money? You sacrifice. But the truest test of love, sacrifice. If you sacrifice for God, you sacrifice for, him. what do you sacrifice for? And what are you obeying? Your master is a person that you will end up obeying. Whatever they say, hey, do this, work 20 hours a day for me. Yes, I will bow at the altar of money in order that I might have have the thing that money promises. What are you obeying? Um, You may have heard the story. A pastor named Tony Campolo used to be very, uh, just a great, great, influential man of God. I think in recent days, his theology has become a little bit twisted and he's going off a, a different path that doesn't agree with evangelical Christianity. Back in the day, uh, he did. he's always done a lot of uh, social work and, and took care of uh, the underprivileged. And he had a medical clinic in Haiti and some many, many years ago, he took a group from his church, youth, down to Haiti. In northern Haiti, they set up this medical clinic and people would come and they said, this one particular day, 300 people came to get rudimentary medical Advice. 300 people came, but there was only one doctor and two nurses. They could only see about 60 to 70 of these people. And they had to turn away over 200 people, and many of them would not make it back to the next time a clinic would be held because they were so sick. And there was one student there, his name was Charlie. And Charlie saw this and he said, Pastor, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to go and I'm going to study my tail off. I'm going to do my best at the university. I'm going to go to medical school and I'm going to come back down here and I'm going to do medical missions. I'm not going to let this happen. Not not while I'm alive, not in my lifetime, not if I can help it. I'm going to come back down here and I'm going to give my life to the people of Haiti who can't get medical treatment. That was a call that the Lord burned in his heart. He said, just watch, Pastor, you just watch. Many years later in New York City, a pastor saw his former student Charlie walking on the streets of the Big Apple. And he said, hey, you know, how are you doing? And he said, pastor, pastor, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm, I'm, I'm serving the Lord God. I'm giving a lot of money to the church, doing a lot of things for the kingdom. Said, so, so, so what happened? He's like, I went to school. I went to med school. In fact, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. I made it. What are you doing with your degree? He says, well, he turns out he got into cosmetic surgery. Plastic surgery, okay, not, the, not the healthy kind of stuff, but the kind of stuff that creates these impossible ideals of beauty that our culture propagates. He said, this is what I'm doing. He says, but don't worry, I go to church faithfully every week, and I'm given my 10%. And the more he talked about how he's living for God, the more his former pastor became sick to his stomach at the justification that he was giving. And at the end, he said, just stop, Charlie, stop. Listen, you could dress it up all you want. You could call it whatever you want, but you know what you are? You're a sellout. You sold out. Now, you could talk about how you're living for God, you could, but you had a call on your life. You had a call on your life, a singular call to do that which is right, that would make an impact in this world. You had one mission in life, but you sold out to your master, which is money. Who are you obeying today? Money says, hey, just work a few extra hours. Just this week. That one week becomes a month. That month becomes a year. A year becomes 10 years and all of a sudden your children have grown up without you ever knowing who they are. Your master is money if you're obeying and bowing and worshiping at the altar of money. This is what Jesus saying you cannot serve it's not you shouldn't or you be careful he's saying you can't it is impossible to serve both god and money if you have the opportunity this great job opens up in a place where you know there's no spiritual influence around you but you could make three times the money that you're making somewhere else where you know you're going to be growing what are you going to do if that's a no brainer for you that's simple and could it be that you're being mastered by money more than you care to know? What do you love? What do you obey? And what are you trusting? Every master, every master, okay? Every master promises you satisfaction. Every master says, listen, if you worship at my altar, I'll give you these things. I'll give you these things. You know where the idea of, of piercing your ears comes from in the Bible? It's very interesting In those days, slavery was not a racial thing, and it was not something of oppression. It was people who hired themselves out often as a legitimate job in order that we might work. So slavery in the biblical picture is very different from the slavery of modern day or with the uh, the North African slave trade. It's not the same thing. So when the Bible talks about slavery... Uh, for many people, it's, it, it's a temporary thing, and slaves would be released or they would buy their freedom. But every once in a while, there would be somebody, a slave, who does their time with their master, makes enough money, and is free to leave, either it be the year of jubilee where sl- slaves are sent back home, or for whatever reason, they they've financially, economically come to a place where they can go, but they choose to remain with their master. At that point, what would happen is that the slave would go to the and this is kind of weird but the slave would go to the doorpost of their master's home they would kneel and they would put their earlobe on the doorpost of the home and an awl would be driven through their nail their their ear <clears throat> and their ear would effectively be pierced to the master's house saying all of my life i'm entrusting it to your care Everything that I am belongs to you. The bounds of my service will be limited to your house and to your house alone because I am yours and I'm yours alone. And every ounce of trust in the slave's heart was being completely surrendered to their master that you will take care of me, you will provide for me, you will give me everything that you promise. I belong to you. Psalm 84, one of the great psalms, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. David picks up this language of having his ear pierced, and he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in your house than to spend my life in the courts of the wicked. He's saying, God, I'm trusting you with everything that I am. If your life was to be pictured with the pierced ear, To whose door would you be committed to? Is your ear pierced to the door of money? Are you loving and obeying and trusting money? The Bible never says that it's bad to have money, to own money, to have stuff. It doesn't even say it's bad to have a lot of stuff or to have a lot of good stuff. The problem is not when we own this stuff. The problem is when that stuff begins to own us. The problem is not that you own stuff. The problem is that that stuff owns you. How do you know that you're being owned? <laughs> that you're being mastered by stuff? Again, you're willing to sacrifice things that are important in order to have it, your family, your relationship with God, your morals. You're willing to sacrifice something eternal in order to get that stuff. And you are being mastered by those things. You think about it constantly. You can't imagine life without it. You have nightmares that that thing will be taken from you. You dream about those things. If that describes something in your life other than Jesus then that has effectively become an idol, a master in your life. And the deception is that we can come and think that we're being committed to Jesus as our master, but if our hearts are loving, obeying, or trusting anything else, then that is our effectual master in our lives. So what owns you? Another sign that you're being owned by those things is that when somebody speaks of that thing in your life, you begin to get very defensive about it. It's no, it's not that bad. I can give this up anytime I want. I can give up this relationship. I can give up this possession. I can give up this passion. I can give up this. I, I can give it up anytime I want. It's not owning me. The more defensive we get about it, it's a sign that we need to look into our hearts. You're looking into my heart. It's all about you, Jesus. As he looks into our hearts, what is he exposing? What is he showing us? To whom are we bowing down and laying our lives before? What happens when you begin to realize that you're being mastered by money? Richard Foster says here, here's your simple, simple, simple answer. Give it away. Give it away. If you're being owned by a possession, give it away. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't go around saying, oh, you know, look how much. Just don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's what Jesus says. Just quiet. Just give it away. And your heart, which has shriveled up and shrunken because it's being owned and mastered by something that promises but doesn't give, will begin to come to life again. We'll either spend our money, save our money, or share our money. How do we share? Probably most of us aren't saving enough so that we can share, but we're spending, so we shrink our our spending in order that we might share with other people. It's really, it's quite simple. If we're enslaved to money, think about where is it all going? And then cut back on that. If it's all going to, to close, Okay, I'm going to start somewhere. One less shirt, one less pair of shoes, one less dress, a year. That $100, just give that away to somewhere. Just give it away. We can't serve both God and money. You you come to realize that money makes a terrible master. Because it promises you all these things. You love it. And then all of a sudden, you begin to realize it's not giving me anything in return. I'm sacrificing for money, sacrificing for all of this stuff. But it's not giving me anything in return. You obey it, thinking that it's going to provide what it promises. You obey, you obey, you obey, only to realize you're getting what you want, but it's never enough. This is just a little bit more master money. You're trusting it for meaning, for significance, for value, for life, for comfort, only to find those things so elusive and you realize that money has betrayed your trust because money makes a terrible master. But when God becomes our master, money becomes an incredible servant to be able to build the kingdom of God, to be able to impact eternity to be able to be used as a channel to save lives, to send out more missionaries, to build more bridges, to see more people come into the kingdom of God. Paul Tripp writes in one of his books, How, How We Change, How People Change. He talks about comfort. But I want to I talk about money in the same way that he talks about it. Money, if we can personify it and we can speak to money for a second. Money, you look so beautiful to me. But when did you ever leave your riches behind to enter into this world to suffer for me? Money, you look so beautiful, but you never promise, you never satisfy and fulfill the promise that you make to me. Money, I have foolishly pierced my ear at the doorframe of your house. When were your hands and feet ever pierced for me? in order that I might find life and forgiveness of sins. Money, when did you ever enter into the fray and suffer on my behalf? When did you ever die so that I might be forgiven? When did you ever rise again in order that I might have life? When did you ever promise the Holy Spirit to know that I will have riches untold even when money in this life fails me? When did you ever ascend into heaven and promise to intercede for me so that I might be strong when everything falls apart in my life? And when did you promise to come back to take me home in order that I might be freed from my addiction to the things of this life? The answer is never, never, never. There will never be a master like Jesus. There will never be. Be a master like him. He promises and he alone can deliver. You cannot serve both God and money. So who will you choose? Let's pray. Have you been mastered by money? I'm looking into my heart, y'all. This sermon is not about I wish someone else could hear it. This is about you and me. Jesus knows how deceptive money is. That's why he specifically says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Because the problem with money is that we often are enslaved without ever knowing it. If you're enslaved, if I'm enslaved to lust, I know about it. You know about it. If I'm enslaved to pride, I know about it. If I'm enslaved to laziness, I know. But it's easy for us to be deceived by greed, thinking, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. I give about 5% away. I'm okay. I buy people lunch on occasion. I'm it says, be on your guard. Search your heart. Don't be deceived. Maybe the baseline for some of us is I need to commit to getting my giving to 10% at least. I need to commit to storing up treasures in heaven, building bridges. I need to commit to a certain amount every month to give to our missionaries in our house church. I need to commit a certain amount every month. I'm going to stop going out once a month and that five bucks I save, I'm going to give it to my friend who's going on missions this summer. i to make a commitment. I'm going to change. I don't want to be mastered by money. I want to be mastered by Jesus, singularly focused on the things that really matter in life. Let's pray. Let's make a commitment right now. When we're mastered by God, our eyes will be good. Our treasures will be in heaven. It flows. What's on the throne? Who's on the throne? Throne always sets the tone for life. Let's pray for a couple minutes right now. Repentance, commitment. Lord, take me, be my master. I'm yours. Pierce my ears. Oh Lord my God. I'm yours to stay forever. Forever. I'm yours. Let's pray together for a couple Father in heaven, we thank you that our beautiful Savior Jesus was not tight fisted in his generosity. The reason, Father, you say that you love a cheerful giver is because you do. But it's also because every command reveals a character of God, that our Father in heaven is a cheerful giver to us. Not only that, but our Father in heaven has done everything that he asks us to do. You gave cheerfully, out of love, your one and only son, in order that we might become your eternal treasure, that you might be our eternal treasure. Thank you so much for loving us. Even as we give today, we are giving be joyful, cheerful, because we know that whatever we give to you, we never lose, we always invest. So we thank you, Lord, thank you for loving us. We love you because you've loved us first in a way that no money, no master, no possession besides you can. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we